This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. Joe and Matthew join artist Craig Drennan at an undisclosed location to discuss his work and creative life. Fape shops, florists, and Thomas Paine's funeral are all broached. A Chuck Close encounter is shared. Bandwidth is occupied and consumed. This is episode 32. Undisclosed, Black Ops, secure site. Did you get pictures? You got, got some pictures. Picture. Okay. All right. But it's it is, it's, yeah. Okay. No address. No Temporary name. studio for Temporary. how long? Um, you know, maybe the end of this month, maybe longer. Okay. Well, we went to uh, talk last week. Right. Good room full of people and... Fine assortment of humans, yeah. Just... You gentlemen were there. Thank uh, you. Thanks for coming out. It was an engaging talk, and those aren't always pleasurable. Is that true? Let's hear some names. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't always pleasurable, but just what a great, what a great time! I think everybody had. I mean, well, that's good to hear. Critics yeah. are raving. They're calling it the feel-good talk of the year, and. I don't know what kind of critics you're going they, to. Uh, you know, the resounding thing was a lot of people were saying they just they haven't heard you speak about your work. In well, such that's detail. that's true, and I think that um, I haven't shown a lot in Atlanta, right. and I haven't given any sort of public uh, talks. I've uh, not that I haven't wanted to. I was going to say, was that a concerted effort? Not at just all. Just to... just the opposite. Okay. I would love to uh, do more in Atlanta. Would love it. Well, I mean. <clears throat> that's something you've touched on on numerous occasions. You know, I think it's easy for people to just like look at Craig Drennan; he's everywhere. But I mean, you've you've talked about some some years of toiling in sure. the studio, and you know, we and we're continuing the tradition here. We have a former museum worker in our presence. Absolutely, we've had uh, we've had museum guards. Mm-hmm. My first job right out of college, I took a one year position in Lexington, Kentucky, to manage a. School gallery at a small liberal arts, a small but expensive liberal arts yeah. college. Then after that, I moved to New York and started getting jobs, you know, carrying crates around, installing work. And then, it, as I gained skills, I became preparator at the International Center of Photography, uh, which oh. was a good. That was a good gig. I learned a, a lot about uh, photography at that job and met a lot of photographers. Uh, Cornell Capo was still on site. He started the museum. He was the founder. And then after that, I went to some different places. I worked at the Jewish Museum a little. I worked at uh, the National Academy Museum quite a bit. But then it was like the Guggenheim that was like that was the the best sort of pain, and oh, wow. and that was that was a good gig. And it was like you got to meet all the artists. You got to depending on what you were assigned. I mean, it could be picking up work out of collectors' homes and bringing it to the museum. You could be working with the artists themselves in their studio and bringing it in. Or just, you know, being on site, like installing the work. I, I love that job. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Did you get to see, like, stuff in the in the stacks, in the storage, or, I'm sh- you know? Yes. The Holy um, of Holies? Uh, well, easy, brother. Um, <laughs> yes, and I, uh, I mean, I worked in the warehouse, uh, depending on what level of security clearance. And, again, what, what skills you had. And, and I was... Um, had experience and works on paper, so I, I got to the warehouse and worked there quite a bit. And cool. uh, yeah, I mean it was it was amazing. You couldn't, I mean you couldn't just go 
rummage through things sure. as you like. But if you ask permission, then certainly the uh, you know the paper conservator, whoever was in on duty, generally was was more than happy to sort of you know bring out something that if you wanted if you really wanted to see it. That's pretty cool. It was a great job, and the effort matched the pay in a way that I haven't really had before or since. A job where the amount of effort and the amount of pay seemed like they exactly matched up. In that era, like you know, were you uh, able to make work? Yeah, know, that... yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always, always make work. So, well, the legend is that you know you're you're an early riser. Really? At least years ago, <laughs> well, I thought I, I, I thought you were one of those like in the studio by like five a.m. and working before. Well, which is probably you're like right around the time you get in from your raves and all that stuff you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me, I I like to work hard. So, uh, so yeah, I I carve out my schedule. To, uh, I mean, the studio always comes first, so whatever, I mean, I've had so many different kinds of jobs, as I'm sure you have too, And but the studio practice, that's the consistent part. I mean, the jobs change, the locations change, and in your case, like, the girlfriends change constantly. <laughs> but, but I like, you know, I like keeping the studio practice, like, really consistent, and then... That makes the rest of life easier to sort of organize and manage. So what is a, a typical day for you? Well, you know, it's, again, it's, I, I do benefit from keeping a calendar and say this block of time is in the studio, even if, even if it's not so productive, even if you're just sitting there. Yes. Yeah. But that part is really important. But, um, you know, it's studio plus my, you know, whatever duties my job number one requires of me. And then I always have like job number two, which I've had like working at a residency program or writing for different magazines. So I, whatever those jobs require. So studio practice first and then whatever the employers demand after that. So some days it's all studio and some days it's teaching from, you know, 8am to 2.30 or so and then studio or whatever. But studio time the act of creation has been a constant, yeah. no compromise. I mean, no. And it's what I'm, I think it's what I'm best at. I mean, I try to do well at whatever jobs I have and, and try to, you know, deliver the goods. And I, my background, as you heard from the talk, it's like I grew up in West Virginia and it was super working class background. And the idea that you go to work is just in the DNA. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you have to go to work. And whatever you're, you are, whatever you do for your work, you should try to do a good job even if you hate it. I mean, I didn't grow up around people who loved their jobs. Yeah. They tolerated it because they needed money to live. Yeah. And then after the job, after you clock out, then you can do something that's sort of beneficial to you and your family. Or, or you know, the job is beneficial, but something that's enjoyable, perhaps. You turn on other parts of your brain. So the idea of just a lifetime of continual labor like that's not foreign to me like that's yeah. what I, that was the model I grew up knowing moving from that culture to first of all how, how do you refer to yourself do you refer to yourself as an artist as a painter yeah. okay oh yeah, yeah. I mean I, you, I'm and mainly I, I think of myself as a painter because that's really where it starts for me okay and even if even if the momentum of some you know uh, idea takes me outside of painting like I still, I, it still seems like it's in the universe of painting to me. Yeah. It may not to other people, but to me it does. So how did you, from that culture to 
I'm going to be a painter. I'm going to do it, and I'm committing, not compromising. When did that switch get get flipped? I think, I mean, probably when I was maybe three or four years old. I mean, I didn't have any role models. I didn't know any artists. I didn't know anybody who had ever been to a museum, let alone like me be going to one. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't have any of that. But for some reason, I always just knew that I was going to be an artist, and I always drew from an early age. And even in the first grade, I remember if I uh, if I finished my assignments uh, quickly, which I did, because I was a very bright boy. <laughs> Stop laughing. Um, <laughs> And then I, I, as long as I could, uh, didn't bother anybody, I could look through, like, the books in the class, which was just, you know, a teacher's way of saying, like, don't bother me, go, okay, yeah. you're finished, go do something. So I would go to the encyclopedia, and I, as a, um, you know, as someone who likes, a, a completionist, I would say, I said, well, I'm going to start with A, and I'm going to read them all. And in A, they had, like, the art section. I remember as soon as, I remember as a, as a six-year-old at that point, in, in the first grade, flipping through and seeing the section under art, which was, like, some grand kind of paintings, and then maybe one Winslow Homer. And I remember just thinking, oh, that's, that's what I do. I think wow. That's, yeah, that's my section. Did you, did you experience pushback from your family, your friends? This is the path I'm going to take. No. No. I mean, they were, uh, I mean, all, again, everybody I knew, uh, or I'll phrase it differently, I didn't know anyone who had an easy time in life. Yeah. And so when I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be an artist, that was unknown, but they're, but they're like, all right, if that's what you want to do. And so the idea was, well, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, uh, and it seemed like they could tell that that's what made me happy. So they're like, all right. Give it a shot. So, yeah, there's no, there's no pushback. That sounds, like, tremendous, though, in terms of knowing that early and not having to, like, give yourself permission or... Yeah, I don't understand all that talk. And I and the, the more I'm sort of around other people and interacting with artists of all different types, I realize that it kind of is a gift to never have had any doubt. It well, is. I would know, and yeah, to it know is. at any age that you want to, I was in awe, like in undergrad, of anybody that knew, like, you know, I want to be a lawyer or I want to be a, whatever, a taxidermist or... Where, uh, uh, where did you go to undergrad? Florida State. Florida State. FSU, Tallahassee. In beautiful Tallahassee. Well, yeah. it, is, it is nice there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you say ironic, but I think, I mean, it, no, I have, I have. I gave a talk at uh, FSU once, and the students, the faculty, like facilities, everything seemed really great. I came away impressed. Well, that's good. That's good to know. That's I mean, there are a lot of vape shops there for you, for your vape needs. <laughs> what? He hates vape shops. He's, really? Yeah, he sees it as the next check cashing. Well, because they they put all the hot topics out of business. <laughs> I, and the I, we have boutiques. a running joke, but for the, for the longest time, I just keeps looking like people are really into Jethro Tull. They just look like flautists. Yeah. With these apparatus that look like flutes, practically mm -hmm. these these giant. I barely know what language you're speaking Vapes. right now. You said Jethro Tull and flautist. Uh huh. All right, all right. I yeah, guess you. That's yeah. that's the frequency. Is I that how they on. say it in New Jersey? Isn't it flautist? Of course it is. Yes, yeah, flautist. Yes. Oh, he's gonna have me tongue tied. A flutist. You could <laughs> also say flutist. No, it's flautist. That's the correct way. Uh, well, I you know. I think the work ethic in anybody that's good at anything, uh, that's a 
rule number one, you know, it's just like get up and do it and not wait to paraphrase good old Chuck Close, but, you know, not wait for the inspiration. Can we? Oh, you can't say anybody's name anymore. You know, the first time I ever went to New York, I was uh, still a grad student at high university, and I um, sent basically a fan letter to Chuck Close. I'd never been to New York. I'd barely left West Virginia. But I sent a letter to him. There used to be a book that was in every library, which was like Guide to American Artist. Oh, wow. And they had their address in the book. And I, I, was, I thought, what? This can't be right. So I sent a letter to Chuck Close at the address in this book at the Ohio University Library. And I remember it was just like, you know, you know whatever. Like, I, you're a great painter. You know, I like your work. It sounds funny now. Uh, but I said, but if uh, I would, if you ever need a studio assistant, you know, I would be happy. I think I could possibly contribute. And then I forgot about it. I remember it was all, it was a Friday, kind of a lousy, dreary Friday in Athens, Ohio. I mean, Athens was a great town. I used a good school, but like that day was kind of lousy. And I remember the phone ringing. This was before caller ID, like you have on your beeper, Joe. But <laughs> I love that pager, man. Your pager and my fax machine, right? But it was, uh, so the phone rang, and like, you know, as we did in the past, I answered it not knowing who was on the other end. And it was, it's like, hi, it's Chuck Close, it's Craig there. And I was like, what? And, it, and so I started talking, and then it became obvious that it really was him, and that he did have a position open. And so I drove to Philadelphia, took the train to New York, and interviewed with him. And I didn't know, like, that was, the, the door to the elevator opened. I saw him in his studio in the wheelchair. And that's like, that wasn't public knowledge yet. So I'm just like, not only am I in New York, which is overwhelming, and meeting Chuck Close, which is a big deal, but then he's like in a wheelchair. I'm like, what is happening? Wow. But then he and his assistant at that time uh, explained, explained it to me, and I had the, uh, had the interview. I did not get the job. Because he called me like later, back when I was back in Ohio, and he uh, Chuck Lewis called me and he said that he had someone he really wanted me to finish school because he needed somebody quick, and I would have quit school to move to New York. Yeah. And he said he really thought I should finish school, and there was one other guy who uh, had, had finished and was able to move to the city like right away. In a strange turn of events, that guy actually lives in Atlanta now too. Who was Chuck Close's assistant? He used to be in a garage band in Brooklyn that I used to go hear. Any ill will there? Or, uh, no, not no. at all. All good. Plus, I've, <laughs> I've like paid Tony Harding and <laughs> whack his. You know, Joe. That would be not all of us. Not all of us solve our our problems with, with violence. violence like you do. No, there's nothing at all. And in fact, I, Case was in a band called Eighteen that I used to go hear all the time in Williamsburg back when I lived there. So no, we good times. All good times. That's a crazy story. That's a great story. Um, Williamsburg, what, about, about when was that? That was, I mean, I was in New York for a big chunk of the 90s and left in 99. Um, but the Williamsburg era, I had a studio on 27th Street that I shared with, before with some folks. But, yeah. But it was um, like 90, I don't know, 90... I honestly don't know. It was a little foggy back then in the 90s, but sometime in the late 90s, I was in Williamsburg. I'd been in the East Village. I tried living outside the city to see if that was going to be easier, like to move just north of the Bronx, and that was not easy. Oh, wow. In Yonkers? Yeah. I thought, I thought I'm going to solve it. I'll get a cheap place that's outside the city, and it made everything way more difficult. 
Yeah, not a good idea. Stay where you are, people of Brooklyn. Um, do you think, I mean, it's such an overwrought conversation, but, uh, you know, obviously New York always comes up, and Brooklyn, when you're talking to artists, but I mean... Did you pronounce it like a Dutch person just then? Well, I know you're in... Brookvike? I know no, you're into using Dutch the, uh, conceptualism, so, you know. He's using more upspeak lately. Uh, I see that. It troubles me. Go yeah. on. But, uh, you know, do you, uh, I mean, obviously you... you teach, you're around a lot of uh, students and sure. younger artists and right. older artists, and, but do you, uh, do you counsel the old, uh, you know, move to New York and if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere kind of deal, or are you, at this point, just do it wherever the hell you're going to do it and, you know. I mean, what do you tell people? Uh, You're the elder statesman of the uh, Contemporaries uh, Studio Program. He's, uh, I am not, He actually. is also... I'm not. I'm going to out you on this. What's that? He has also been named, nicknamed recently, by someone well-placed in the art world. I'm listening. He has been named The Scholar. Well, I like that. By no less than... Well, well, well. Yeah, that was something. Didn't expect that. Did not expect that. And... Because, because of your opinion of him is so low? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, that was good. He's standing there and just dishing it out. He, he likes to put people on the spot. And then it just, <laughs> and so so it's, it's actually wasn't a great... Uh, he goes, hey, you, hey, what does the scholar think? And Joe's like, eh, because Joe actually had him on a couple of points in, in, oh. our, little, in our little discussion and our walk and... and um, it was interesting to watch, and I, my money was on you, actually. Oh, come on. This wasn't yeah. a sporting event. Was it a cockfight? What are you talking about? <laughs> we went to a cockfight with... <laughs> which would be awesome. Yeah, that would. And you, I would lose. Actually, I don't know that it would be that fun. It's all about the rooster, you know. You don't have to actually fight the other hen. <laughs> wow. Um, it was one of those things, that, no matter what you would say, he'd be like, yeah. But, and then you'd get the, and you, of course, you're in his house, so you just shut up and listen. And he's obviously very astute. But, uh, they, they, and you don't want to be that guy, too, on the tour that's just like, oh, well, actually, I mean, he asked me a question, so I answered. I, otherwise, I would have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I'll go ahead and answer. I, mean, I was trying to have a little human connection. Oh, this is, this is, yeah, this what is, an abject failed attempt yeah, on I'm my part. Yeah, I'm actually feeling like, let's go to the notes. Um, go back a minute. Go to like the. When all else fails, ask number thirty-six. All right. All right. What, all right. I think that it's really important to leave your backyard, and I see a lot of folks who uh, maybe don't. You know, some who do leave their backyard, and I see others who really don't leave their backyard uh, quite enough, mm -hmm. and then uh, sort of wonder like, well, why? You know, why is this not happening for me, or whatever, and then. But, so my advice is, you know, it is important to leave that comfort zone. And might, that might be New York City. It might be Los Angeles, Chicago, wherever. It might mean taking your first trip to Europe for a week or whatever the case may be. Because I didn't, I mean, I didn't grow up, like, going to Europe or having right. those big trips. So I was, I was well into adulthood on my first trip to Europe. Me too, yeah. And so, but it was extremely important to me. Mm -hmm. So I, so I think whatever it is, I think you do have to get out and, and sort of see things live in a, in a big way and, and save up your money and, 
and go to New York for a week. If you've never been there, if you've only been there for like somebody's, uh, you know, in your case, somebody's like bachelor party, <laughs> you know, that's fine. But I think go there, spend some time, go. Um, and I, I agree. Go to go other other places as well. But I mean, New York is still the center, right? Sure. But how many times have you seen somebody do that, thinking that the key to everything is leaving, moving to New York, and then? It kind of sets in that, like, wait a minute. It's not just that. There's more to it. Well, but, I mean, they, I say that about Hollywood, too. Yeah. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a, an aspiring actor or director, screenwriter, who says, you know, I'm never going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to stay in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you look at that person with admiration? It's like, oh, you're doing it. Live your life. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I just thought of, like, Linkletter and all the great films coming out of Texas right now. But Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> to your point, though, or asking, uh, I think it depends on the person. And again, if this is somebody that's making... People this, of Texas, write your letters to Brain Fuzz, not Greg Jones. <laughs> you know, Instagram at Brain Fuzz Podcast. Folks that are actually, you know, making work and already have that discipline, like, that's the one thing, like, you can't teach. You can talk about it till you're blue in the face. And I think... Um, Listeners, his face is blue right now. Very blue. Um, that to me, it's like if they're going to take advantage of it. Otherwise, like wow, you're going to, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, moving to Atlanta is it sounds like this. That's is true. Cheap. That is exactly so, right. So, and, and I don't, I don't uh, discredit that or diminish that in any way because I know. My for, my thing yeah, to absolutely. anybody is where can you go, especially like younger artists. Where can you go and make work? Um, you know, like even just for a year. And have some quality of life, and really, and then kind of maybe think about New York. I mean, there's some people that. Uh, well, what you're saying is like develop your practice. Sure, like, have something yeah. you know to say versus just like you know, great, you're you're in Brooklyn. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily. Yes, it's the center of the world, but I don't think it's so. You, you know, with with Instagram or with hourly flights. I mean, I think that the barriers are a little. Yeah. What did you just lower. say? Instagram, and Instagram, hourly and flights. hourly flights. Yeah, I mean, as far as like, hey, you can get to New York pretty quickly. Well, if you have money. Well, but Instagram. Does Megabus go there? Ooh, I wouldn't want to do that. That's all I want to do. I would want I will. I will add a follow up to that because I, I I absolutely hear what you're saying, but I I also think that. Those moments, and there's a, there's been a couple moments, like in the in the '40s and '50s, like the New Deal, like the WPA project, yeah. that that was just a structure that brought artists together, and that has to happen. Like you have to sort of meet other artists, artists who are really different from you and from different parts of the country. The thing that like the military used to do, like for poor kids, is like, oh, now you're now you're in the military and your unit. There are people from all over the country. There are people from different religions. The WPA, I think, did that, just bringing people together. And in the 60s, Soho, when Soho became an art district in New York, I mean, you know this already, I'm sure, but it it wasn't automatically. It had to be rezoned, and it was a fight to get Soho rezoned for live and light manufacturing. And it was, you know, the founder of, uh, of Fluxus, who was crucial in the rezoning efforts, and after, I mean, you have a couple things in place. When Soho is rezoned for live light manufacturing and it has rent control, then you don't have to do anything else. 
and all the artists get there, and again, they're interacting. There's a structure sure. that was put in place that caused artists to be close to each other and interact with each other, and you had the development of one of the most productive, dynamic, and consequential arts districts in the history of the world. That is something that other cities can learn from. You don't have to do anything else. When people say the word community, it drives me up the wall. Yeah. Because that's not what they want. Yes. If you can create community, if you have rent control and zone live work, any city can have it. Any city can have this. If there's a city that would do that, say, all right, rent, we have rent control in this district and it's zone live work, the artists will pour in and they will thrive and they will get to know each other and you will have that organic, magical thing that cities say they want. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, to go back to your question, if you're not always going to get that, you're not going to get that sense of community. I got it from working on the art handler circuit. Like when I moved to New York, that's how I met all the artists who were like me, who were doing better than me, the famous artists. It was all through installing shows. Like that was my WPA. That's how I met other artists and, and started to hang out with them and, and form sort of like-minded communities. So I feel like you need to find that. I mean, yes, you had to develop your practice, but eventually I think that that peer dynamic is super important. Certainly you did. You got out of your backyard. Um, where did you go straight away when you left home? Well, left West Virginia. Yeah. I, from there I went to uh, Ohio, and then from Ohio to Kentucky, and then from like after one year in Lexington, Kentucky, or a year and a half, mm -hmm. then I moved to New York. Okay. So I, I sort of you know, went to college, and got like a first job, like still in uh, whatever that would be, like Northern Appalachia. Mm -hmm. And then from there went to New York City. In the talk that we saw last week, you said that you, you actually don't have a great handle, you said on, or at the time, on 80s references and 80s culture. Right. When did you, when did you absorb all of that? Oh, I don't, I mean, I just haven't watched, you like, what's that, what are those things that you guys grew up watching, Goonies, Back <laughs> to the Future? Like, I didn't watch any of that. <laughs> yeah. This, so does Stranger Things mean anything to you now? It's nothing to me. Okay. Except that's what I call That's what's written on my diary. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think you've read a couple times. So I left it on your pillow. Nice. The jokes tell themselves, <laughs> The talent fills the room. <laughs> it does. Uh, we always kind of have an ongoing discussion about the value of mentorships and obviously outside of your academic realm um, can you talk a little bit about that like right now like would you consider like do you have a mentor Joe I'm, you are my mentor <laughs> how dare you just for fashion <laughs> um, no I hear what you're saying and I think that uh, it is extremely important and I think that's a that's a case where again having uh like intergenerational artists coming together. I mean, academia actually is one of the places that's kind of preserving that, like sure, intergenerational yeah. contact. But again, like working in the art handler circuit, like I had people who sort of like took me under their wing and sort of recommended me for other jobs and did studio visits and, and so forth. And then, uh, you know, as I got older, uh, a funny thing started to happen where sometimes my mentors were actually younger than me and, you know, the, the folks I've met, the galleries I've shown with, like the folks at Skowhegan, certainly, mm -hmm. 
uh, have been extremely uh, uh, kind and mentoring to me, like the faculty and staff there. And uh, so, so yes, I mean, it's super important. And I, I'm someone who takes that, like, really seriously. Even though you're joking about it and making pantomime gestures toward me, <laughs> I take it extremely serious. Hey, not everybody is is plugged into the whole arts kind of. Can you talk a little bit about Scowigan? Um, sure. I, mean, I can say whatever you want. It's uh, it's been a, a a residency program and with an educational component since 1946. And it's one of the few, uh, I think I can say this, one of the few long-running residency programs that was not funded by a wealthy family. It was four army buddies who basically started it on a main farm as a way to get away from, uh, you know, New York City and the uh, emphasis on the marketplace. And this is in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Like, the wow. New York was too market-centric. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, imagine that. And it's, it's been sort of an organic, growing kind of program, but uh, it's, I think it's really terrific. And I, it's a nine-week summer program. The application deadline just passed, so, uh, you know, the review process has started. And, and it's a different jury every year, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, it's it's the, the faculty, the, faculty the on-ground faculty for the upcoming summer, plus whatever members of the Board of Governors are not having retrospectives or flying somewhere to receive their MacArthur Award and things like that. I mean, I, that's, yeah. I'm being real. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, just about everybody I know, that is something that, you know, they uh, light candles and uh, pray for. Um, well, so you participated. Yes, in 2006. I was, uh, and what I love about it is it's a totally blind during process, so you don't see a resume, you don't see a statement, you see 10 images, 10 pieces of work. That's oh, it's great. still blind. Yep. Wow. And that's something that um, that the founders, it was important to the founders. Uh, I think the staff, the directors are still very proud of that. And nice. It yeah. is, I mean, as, as much of a meritocracy as you can mm-hmm. find in the art world, which mm-hmm. doesn't really like meritocracies, that's I don't right. think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so somebody <laughs> like me could get in. Oh, come on. I'm, I'm uh, being serious. And then after that, I again, I, I was asked if I wanted to come on as a staff member. So in 2010, I joined as the dean. That's phenomenal. And then 2011, 2012, and then I went, I retired prematurely, it, apparently. Uh, so I was asked if I would consider coming back in 2016 as dean, which I did. So I had some staffing changes and, you know, just asked what I come back to since I knew the routine and I was happy to do it, and it was a great summer. So are you on site every summer? <clears throat> uh, the summers I was dean, I was on site. But I still am helping however I can, like That's what, sort of at large, as yeah. needed, large or small. Sometimes I'm not needed at all. Uh, and, and, but if something comes up, I help out whenever I can because I, I genuinely believe in the program, and it's, uh, it's great to work for a place whose mission you support 100%, which, again, I think... I've had a lot of jobs in in my life, and some of them have been amazing jobs, and that would be another one. I would say that was like one of the most amazing jobs that I've had because I could contribute. I believed in the mission, and it was very easy to be sort of fully engaged. I don't, I don't think people should look at it as like, oh, I need to go to Skowhegan. This is going to help my career. Like that's like the worst way to look at it. 
the best way is like I'm going to have this experience with strangers with a faculty who who like voted for me to be there and it'll be supportive and uh, I'll make you know uh, how, how will I say it I'll, I'll discover things about my artistic practice that will be useful for years which I did I mean it was extremely useful to me is there an expectation though on like some kind of transformation, you know, like kind of... Well, I think that every place sort of has, I mean, every school sort of, like every BA program or MFA program, I think, has that, the idea that you'll have a transformational experience. But we can't, like, you can't predict that or guarantee it, but you can create conditions where that can occur. Right. And I, I think that, I mean, there, there are a lot of great residency programs. I mean, I've been to Yaddo, McDowell, and, and Triangle, the Triangle Arts Program in Brooklyn, I think is an amazing program, but it's, it's not. It doesn't get as much uh, press maybe as some of the others. But I think it's a tremendous program, started by Tony Caro, the British sculptor. Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, I think all of those programs have the potential for that kind of experience if if the person's ready for it. You okay? So you started earlier saying that uh, he does. You do not talk so much about your work. We're right? talking about me, ladies and gentlemen. You, I'm Craig talking Drennan. about you, Craig Jennings. The Drennan. That. Uh, the talk that we attended was one of the first times yep. that a lot of people have heard in detail where to start sure. in interpreting your work, but well, then yeah, also, sure. but then also uh, <clears throat> the practice and and you know it, it definitely filled in some gaps for me on the earlier like yeah. w- moving from project to project, and you tend to work within a structure, and you said uh, you like to work within the structure. While having an unknown outcome. Yeah. Which I think is freeing to hear. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking around and I'm seeing works from, um, I would say, the body that I'm most familiar with. But I hadn't heard anything about the Supergirl project. Yeah. Well, so, many people haven't. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's really five-and-a-half-year-long project based on the 1984 movie Supergirl, where really I was teaching myself how to paint. I mean, I was doing other things as well. Uh I was sort of trying to learn how, what type of engagement I could have with a found subject. Uh Because everybody's used to found objects, but the found subject is also, I mean, that's a real thing. There's Jasper John flags, and and so on. We've inherited that from from Pop. But I think that... um, yeah, five and a half years of me kind of feeling my way through it. And at the, uh, at, at the, near the end of the project, if somebody was on a computer that wasn't my computer, it was like sort of a neutral computer, uh, and typed in Supergirl the movie, I was like the fourth thing that came up. And that was interesting to me. And that's when it sort of clicked that you could take over a subject mm-hmm. as well. That wasn't my goal for Supergirl, mm-hmm. but but it was interesting to me to watch that happen. And I, to my knowledge, it never got higher than fourth. Uh, but people would show me that. It was like, look what happens if I type in Supergirl the movie. And that was interesting to me. And that's when I started to see these, uh, these abandoned subjects as kind of like available, uninhabited bandwidth. That there's a whole bandwidth in culture that was empty and unclaimed, and you could occupy it. And so that's what, uh, when I moved from Supergirl to Time of Athens, it's, it was farther away in time, 
but it was canonical mm -hmm. and so really hard to dislodge. But there will come a time when, if you say Timon of Athens, you'll think of me first and Shakespeare second. And I don't mean that in, in this sort of, sort of arrogant kind of way, but I will have occupied the bandwidth. I, I already do that. Yeah. Now, I'm not searching for it every day, but, you know. But I think that's the, that's the case also where, like, painting, which I, I think when you say that you're a painter, people make sort of consum uh, assumptions about your, uh, I mean, there's a certain conservatism that goes with it. it, it it's if I, instead of saying, like, I'm a performance artist or yeah. social practice yeah. or whatever, you think, oh, I'm a painter, there's automatically, like, oh, okay, you do something that's sort of well-known with established parameters. But to take drawing and painting and then use it as part of a long-term intervention into the canon. Like, to me, that is interesting. Like, it's interesting to instrumentalize painting in that way. And, and the path it takes, I also get this sort of, as you say, this uh, you know, intuitive moment-by-moment -moment, um, uh, fulfillment of, of immediate artistic goals while also pointing toward a long-term artistic goal. I was born far away from the canon. That's why it's a sensitive topic to me. I was so far away, and even now, like even during my talk, if you know, when people start looking at my work and then mm. they say, I mean, a question I get a lot, which is like an, an honest question, but also kind of a, a strange one, was how can you be from West Virginia? And I was like, I don't, I don't understand that. But see, but, I relate, you know. That's where I, that's where I grew up. This I mean, is, a, that's the height of arrogance. And then, but B, um, you know, like maybe now I look at it as a luxury to have lived in a number of states growing up. It wasn't a whole lot of fun to move. But to at least pre-internet, you know, to be ex right. exposed to different ways of thinking and dressing and museums and all of that. Um, How but are you, Joe? I still feel exactly like what you're saying in mm. terms of, you know, I didn't grow up with it. <laughs> In a tweed jacket, you know, reading Proust. Um, but that's how you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have grown up that way, brother, but that's going to be the end of you. Eating ice cream and barbiturates. Uh, and I think a lot of people relate to that, that, that whole imposter syndrome. I mean, let's face it, how do you, well, I think all, all creative people, you have to form yourself somehow. Oh, for sure. And, and, and you did it with books. I've Similarly, yeah. I, as a and you did it with you know crack controlled substances and, yeah. <laughs> and petty crimes. Um, I hear what you're saying, but I I never felt like an imposter. I just, well, you're saying being so far away. I guess I I don't mean to not like that you're a fraud, but like another. Well, no, but, 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 but people some people do feel like oh I don't deserve to be here. I shouldn't, and I and sometimes even students will say look I don't I don't believe I'm welcome in museums. And I'm always telling them, like, you guys, nobody grew up in a more remote place to the culture of art than I did. And I go to museums all the time. I always did. You are totally welcome. The whole notion of a museum is that it's for the public. Sure. Otherwise, the work will disappear into private collections. I mean, the museum is for everyone. That's the whole point. Yeah. And so I just tell people to go and to continually go. It's costly, which I am not happy about. And that's why I love the National Gallery, because it's always free. Right. Well, but look at how much what, what does it cost to go, to go to a movie, you know? Or, oh. So it's just you kind of pick your poison. But I haven't gone to a new movie since Spartacus. <laughs> I think that, 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 was, the big screen, that was a gift, though, I think. Drive-in. 
to give to a room full of, uh, you know, I and mean, there were all walks of life in there, I'm sure, but, you know, noticing... It a was lot, all aristocrats. A large contingent of, of, of students and former students, academics, writers, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. But there were, there were a lot of writers there, which I was really pleased about, because I, I love writing. And some of the residents, not to interrupt your question, but a lot of the residencies, they'll have artists and writers, and whenever that happens, I always get along well with the writers. With the writers. Yes, well, I believe it. They're super smart, and, and I read, as I said in the talk, I read a lot of poetry because there's something that happens. I mean, I think poets have a really hard time, and there's something that happens in poetry that is so glorious and inexplicable and, and useful. And um, anyway... A good I'm, way to title work, too. Well, yes, but I think a lot... I mean, that, that comes as part of the problem to be solved in writing a poem. But, and also their position in culture is always contested. You know, I think maybe even more than, uh, you know, than, than painters or visual artists. Which, and so I, I admire the path. Like anybody who takes that path, they automatically have my respect. But I, I think the, the product is, is so crucial and so worthwhile. I agree. I'll but, cut it off right there. But I, I guess what I was trying to say is like the, the notion of this, like again, intuition, because I think that's a dirty word. It can be a dirty word in academia or in the high, you know, high-minded art talk, whether at the bar or... Why is in, it? I mean, I, mean, I mean, do you really think that? I do. I feel like if people, they don't want to admit that perhaps there's some kind of happenstance in the work that it lessens it. Hmm. And yet then, like, I'll read... Uh, David Humphrey and Nicole Eisenman talking about how they make work and that there is this evolution in the work that the content kind of comes, the story is written as they're working and it's almost sure. like they can say that now but like in most grad programs that's like heresy and it's like formalism 15 yards, you know kind of thing <laughs> what? Uh, this empty, like the aggressive the environment the empty <laughs> suit kind of thing and so I'm thinking, you made a football reference so that must mean you went to UGA <laughs> why I did I did. It's too soon. Fine, folks. And they, there. <laughs> fine, fine institution. No, I absolutely. I did again. I did a did some studio visits there. Students like really like engaged and like high quality. Like every everything's good. Now that I'm gone. <laughs> right. It did seem God, like it guys. took a, it took an upward spike I, after you <laughs> left the program. Hey, so you said you that you are sensitive to the canon, the topic of the canon. I guess so. How so? I mean, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to have a concise answer for that, like I have for okay, well, all the rest of your <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, they're laughing amongst themselves. <laughs> Frantically looking at our notes. <laughs> are those notes? Those are notes. Like, his penmanship is that's a, that's a beyond reproach. No. That's, yeah, I thought you had, like... You'd stolen some, uh, you know, Thomas Paine parchments out of a helium chamber, but here it is, just your, <laughs> just your uh, notes for this, uh, this talk. Um, we actually do prepare for these, believe Speaking it or not. of Bordentown. Speaking Paine. of the canon, when uh, Thomas can. Paine yeah. died, only six people attended his funeral. You know, the, the engine behind the Federalist Papers, mm -hmm. like one of the great minds, like, the, you know, within the smithy where uh, American democracy was forged. It's awesome. Why do you hate freedom? <laughs> but when he died, he was in such 
disrepute that only six people attended his funeral. Every now and then during a talk, somebody will, somebody will ask like a particular, like some asinine question. Most questions are good, but sometimes a horrible question will come up. It'll be like, if you could have dinner with anybody in history, who would it be? And that, I know that I saw that on your list that you're going to ask later. <laughs> it's not. I expunged it. Okay. I did. But my answer is always... If I could pick anybody in history, I would have dinner with the six people who attended Thomas Paine's funeral. Those are the people I want to have dinner with. Nice. Federalist Papers. Read them. Celebrate them. I wrote a pep paper on it years ago. Of course you did. Uh, so it was like four days old. Right, but he dodged that cannon question. The, the last time I, Hold on. He dodged uh, that cannon question. I dodged many cannons. <laughs> that question, uh, I think I asked... Uh, I, I dodged asked our, more cannons than the French Air Force. Oh. <laughs> Go on. Uh, I asked that question wow. once. The French Air Force. <laughs> it's had more failed pilots than NBC. Oh. Oh. All right. I have a question about reading, though. Wait a minute. Oh, damn it. You're right. See, he does. He, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. He's, I've always said so. But go on. So what was your great. question? The cannon. The cannon. Oh, interesting. Okay. Sensitive to the topic of the cannon. Why is that? You know, it's, it's funny, but I, I think partially because... Um, I grew up not knowing about it. And then when I did know about it, I mean, and even when I went to uh, graduate school eventually, it was very funny because I was like, I mean, I think I can say this freely. There, there, we've had some really, you know, uh, high achieving alums from Ohio University. It's not like a, a high like profile program that people think of, but they've had like really successful people. Jim Dine came out of there, Jenny Holzer. Um, an artist named David True, who had some, I thought, really terrific works in a lot of shows in the 70s. One of my uh, peers there, uh, Kevin Jerome Everson, uh, was in his third Whitney Biennial early this year. And, like, Kevin, like, dynamite artist. Like, I'm, I don't say that just because he's my friend. Like, an absolutely fantastic artist. Uh, makes films now, primarily, and you should go see his work purchase his films if you would get a chance but like support this because this is I think this is like really important work and so there were people there who, who were super high achieving um, and and I was like the weird kid from West Virginia and I think because it was like such a close state it was very easy to sort of be the butt of jokes in some ways in New York nobody cared like where are you from West That's, Virginia yeah. never heard That's of right. it right no you know, like whatever, pick up that crate, which which I did. Um, but in Ohio, it was somehow like a little livelier. So I think I just became aware of it in a way. And and but I but I'll, that's not the only explanation. I think for whatever reason, my uh, my personality, like I, again, like as as a in undergrad, I I was an English major as well as an art major. We could do that, uh, English and art. And it was funny because I was an art major, at least in the beginning, having never been to a museum or a gallery. But as an English major, I, I could have direct contact with the great works. So I could read Virginia Woolf and nobody could stop me. I could read Thomas Mann, I could read Hemingway, whoever. I am a Virginia Woolf fan though. But, um, and so I suddenly became aware of their greatness. And I, and I, you know, I used the line in the in the talk. Somebody asked some kind of question about art history, and I I think I quoted or maybe channeled Tracy Morgan. And there's a line that yeah. he said about you know how are you going to be great if you don't study greatness. And the idea 
of finding greatness. For whatever reason, it was on my mind, maybe more than it was for a lot of kids. When I was like, where is it? How can I find it? How can I have contact with it? And now, how can I quietly, like diffusing a bomb, take it apart over the course of a decade-long art project, which I'm in the midst of now? So as a topic, it's super interesting to me. And I, and I, I don't have a full explanation why, other than I became aware of it, and, I, and on some level, I, I believe in a canon, but I don't believe in a permanent canon. I think the canon has to always be adjusted and contested and, and fought over and, and, and revised, like revisions added to it. Don't you think with the limited access to information over a long period of time and now suddenly the ability to access information freely... What do you... like? What, what line in the sand are you... Information is free. It was always free. It was always free, but the access we don't we didn't have the access that we have now. And so, Maybe. what I'm wondering is how lasting is this idea of the canon once information is dispersed oh, the way it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's both not necessary and and also uh, the canon's not necessary. I don't think it's, uh, no, I mean, I don't think it is, but I think it's also the idea of it, I mean, if I meant, I mean, we're in Atlanta, like we're a thriving music scene, like if I said, um, after the internet, Biggie Smalls is not important, because you can hear everybody now, like that, you wouldn't agree with that. No, yeah, right, no. And so, I think that it's, it's important to sort of always have it be contested, where it's never settled, it's always being fought over. But, I mean, and, I, and I, I'm sort of reluctant. I mean, if somebody came up and said, you know what, I don't think Virginia Woolf is important anymore, I would have arguments for them. I would, too. <laughs> you know I, what I'm I saying? Would too. I, I, totally I might would be too. coming at this from a different direction, but, I mean, to me, I think it's still important that there are books or, or artists or musicians that are held in high esteem by... Smart people, smarter people than, than me, you know, in terms of like there's this pantheon, and like you said, like I think you got to be able to look. But I, but I don't think you should just say it can oh, be shifting. Sure, but. I think, and I think it should be, and that's why I think it's good that I mean, when I was in college, I mean, James Baldwin was not on the reading list. And so I was out of school living in New York City before I read my first James Baldwin essay, essays, plural, and I couldn't believe it. That someone with such a command of language and intellect and, like, and, and a genuine sort of nuanced sensitivity to the culture, like I couldn't believe that I hadn't read that before. I could not believe it. Like now with the, uh, you know, the movie that came out like last year, whatever it was, now everybody's sort of on board, which is great. Right. And this is a case where I think a little canon adjustment was entirely necessary because here's someone whose intellect is so expansive and yet sensitive. It can go longitudinally and it can go deep. And and to sort of I mean it, it I I think that this is a case where um you're like, okay, like this should have been here the whole time. You know? And I think that um other people like when's the last time okay, I'm gonna say it. When's the last time you read Contiki? <laughs> Thor Heyerdahl. Oh, nice. Hell yeah. Okay. That's an epic. You know what? I. But should it still be in the canon? 
My dad I, used to rave about Contiki. It was the only book he get, he cared about. Really? Yeah. But it was because he had to read it in school, you know? Really? I didn't have to read it in school. Well, I mean, I, but I think that's part of it, too. Like, folks have a nostalgia for the canon because it's what they knew. But, yeah. But I think, I mean... Believe me, I West Virginia's produced one Nobel Prize winner, Pearl Buck, The Good Earth. The good Read Earth. it. Wow, that's and right. a great wow. poem by the Phillies. First record. Way to way to bring it down. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good New Jersey band. Come on. No, no, they're good. Uh, I'm joking. So I think that um, anyway, I there there are folks who I'm sure are ready to edit Pearl Buck out of the canon. I hope that the mic is picking up this <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. Are you not... Uh, Stop by not starting. You're not moving to... Um, you're going to stay there and not move to... Or the bottomless cup of you, coffee? I had you. Yeah, first of all, he's gone for coffee. That was a, an Americano, ladies and gentlemen. Nice. Not your... I mean, whatever. I stepped it up because this is a big day. Is that major coffee chain... Are you okay with it or are you... Um, do you, um, like, yeah, I know proximity, you're close to, we're in a coffee desert at the, at this offsite. Right. Right. Undisclosed location. That is correct. It wouldn't be your first pick, though, I'd assume. Well, no, but my first, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to everything, but, uh, I do support Octane. Yeah. Yeah. I do support You gotta Octane. think about what you're gonna wear, though, first, don't you? Nope. Oh, come on. But how do you go into... Look, how do you go into a coffee shop like that if you needed to focus on Contiki, for example? If you were going to go into that, how would you How would you be able to manage that? You would have people bothering you the whole time. If your question was any more wooden, Thor hired oh, all could sail it to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Set and match. Um, a local I, celebrity, though. First of all, you're hilarious. I go, I'm, I'm not bothered anywhere, <laughs> believe me. Okay. You're like, right. hey, wait a minute. Isn't that that conceptually based painter? <laughs> I don't know, man. The turnout the other night was... I was that was, it was great. It was, it was actually really terrific. Um, I think that, um, yes, the, uh, but, but I, uh, right, I'm, uh, it's not like Prince walking through uh, Minneapolis. Let me just phrase it like that. <laughs> it's easy. Do you think you said earlier that well, you don't? Earned it. Yeah, you said that you don't show much in Atlanta. It, isn't that kind of like you know, if you're a band, you don't play your hometown maybe but once a year kind of thing? You know, I'm. I had a show in January 2012 at the now defunct Saltworks Gallery. I think it was the last show. In Atlanta, as you know, you get called on to participate in anywhere from nine to 50 auctions per year. <laughs> With you. And so I've had to like scale back on all that and mm-hmm. only, only, you know, support places where I've actually had, you know, significant mm-hmm. kind of engagement, like the art papers auction, which mm-hmm. I, you know, will always support because I do think Art Papers does an amazing job with a tiny staff and yep. few resources. Yep. I would love to, you know, show more in Atlanta. Like, I think uh, I have some friends who are uh, stand-up comics, and uh, the thing they always say, no matter what you do on the road, you got to kill in your hometown. you got to kill in your hometown. 
And so uh, I don't know that I've successfully did that, but I think it's important just to, it's important to be present, to be part of it, you know, and, and, and uh, just to participate. And as you say, that intergenerational connection with, with, with the other artists in your, in your area. I've had some, uh, some great conversations with other artists and other painters about the show that's up at Mocha GA, Bandit. But, I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, it's just like getting minutes on the court, you know, like you want to play. But maybe, yeah. maybe that'll be easier. Who knows? But that's even better than, say, like the, you know, a typical, perhaps, um, say, show in a gallery in terms of, like, the educational component in terms of, like, giving license or agency to a room full of folks in terms of wow. intuition, um, you know, leaving meaning up to a viewer, because I mean, I think people get so freaked out, like they're doing it wrong. Where's the wall text? Where's the press release? Oh, I don't like wall text. Instead of just thinking... Less text, the better. Really? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, but like, what's... I mean, it's a visual language. Like, if, like I always think of that, that's an old Joan Mitchellism, but you know, it's like if she wanted to write a story, she would have written a book, you know? It's not a test. It's not. A and test, I feel like yeah. sometimes I walk into, you know, an exhibition and I almost feel like, is this some art history class that's timed and I need to suddenly unpack? Now, when know? did... No, I'm saying sometimes there is that feeling. I have to remind myself, like, what's... Why can't... You mean because of like, all the wall text? It feels like, at times, like, some art gets tries to be so conceptual and I'm thinking, like, why can't it be like being in some club and hearing a band and letting that music just hit you, but what's wrong with being overpowered by, by form, by color, by some of these things? And then if you care to think about deeper meaning, what's the title of this thing? Why is this a yelling? You know, that's great. But again, instead of it being like this multiple choice. Why do they test, call this shoegaze? What is this bandit? <laughs> or shoegazi, as I heard it pronounced once. That's pretty good really? too. Mm. That's pretty good. Hey, I gotta back up for just a minute. You used unpacked and agency. Yep. You're, you got two. I'm a little delayed. The text a little delayed. And I'm a little delayed. And, yeah, we'll clean it up in post production. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let the Eastern Europeans handle that. Ooh. Wow. Long Scholar. Time, long time hey. listeners are familiar with our, Marty uh, our tired and but true list of art speak. Really? The Esperanto. We have not had a guest, though, that just abused uh, you know I think it's because of the extreme vetting that we do of our of our uh, of our conversational our guests but um, you know Decatur has an Esperanto society that meets on a monthly basis so please go somewhere else with your hate crime go on <laughs> I would imagine that's an amazing group of people have you, taken, you would be right. Have you taken part? You know, it's not about me here today. Did you make a whole body of work about it? Easy, brother. Easy. It's part of the modernist project to have a universal second language so the whole world could communicate. Well, after Tower of Babel, yeah, you know. You know, some people that's... say abstraction was supposed to do that. What do you think of that, abstractionist? <laughs> There's your Esperanto, your visual. I have, I have thrown <laughs> off the yoke of abstraction. <laughs> Cast, cast I love that. Uh, Your references and the not... verbs you choose are very uh, Talmudic, I'm which I which I appreciate. Um, when you threw off the yoke of abstraction, did it free, free you from the, the pharaoh? My yoke. Anyway. 
Go ahead, Matthew. To touch on the uh, issue of the canon. My God. And, oh, the canon. Nah, that was a good one, though. Um, I was really impressed the other night uh, with... Well, there was one question from the audience that I was not so impressed with. Just but, one? Yeah. <laughs> there were some repeats, too. Yeah, there were. Yeah. How'd you handle that? Um, there were some repeats, too. <laughs> but It's just like... Nice yeah. Uh, the Ephus. Baseball fan? The Ephus pitch? You know it's a It's a lob, a very high lob that can still come over the plate. He, Good reference. The thing hey, is, man, the scholar get... is just. Nope. I don't want to be known as the scholar. I know you did you, did you witness that when you were watching Honus Wagner yeah, play? <laughs> It'll come up in the crossword, I'm telling you. Wow. The yeah. Ephus. You heard it here. Well, you've used a football reference and. And I'm not a sports guy. Yeah, you're not. We don't get a lot of sports references when we uh, sit down to talk, but really, yeah, doesn't happen very often. All right, all, all right, but all right, all right, hey, go back. Right on schedule. I think people. What I hear is that people want to absorb it, want to absorb the work on an academic level, and often feel unprepared, maybe intimidated. Hmm. My work, you mean? Yes. Interesting. And what I love is that I can. It works on so many different levels. Right. Well, I hope so. Can you talk about your intention? Hmm. Okay. I. I mean, I think yes. I'm happy to talk about my intentions, which is, I mean, number one, to create it to create a visual experience. No joke. I'm not diminishing or I'm not evading, but that's first and foremost. And you could leave it at that. I mean, it always is that great no matter what else because before you have time you when you see a new work before you have time to think about what it's about you've already seen it you're already processing like the data you've been given and you've you're already again i mean the the example i like to give is like you open the door to your house you walk out there's the street there's activity there's energy there's different colors like things are happening and that's kind of invigorating and I think that I like works of art and works of literature that kind of mirror that in some way, where first and foremost, they're like, it's energized and it's real. And I think that's really terrific. Beyond that, like just, again, just like when you meet an interesting person, you see the interesting person across the street and you think, now there, something like there's something happening over there. And then you meet them and you're like, oh, now I've learned a little more. And then you spend time with them. Maybe you go back and visit them. You become friends. And then you learn more and more, and it sort of deepens the experience. And that's certainly consistent with my relationship with all of the, the paintings that I, that I love, all the artworks, all the sculptures I love, all of the books that I love, the poems I go back to. Again, I don't go back because I understand them fully. I go back because I almost understand them. And I think that's really important. And I, and I think this notion of like, oh, if I understood things fully, then I would get it. It, it treats the, the work like it's a one-panel cartoon, mm-hmm. where it's like, if I, oh, if I just get this, then I, then I can walk away. But other people seem to be getting it, and I don't seem to be getting it. And I, I, that just seems so misguided to me. Like, it seems terrible. It seems like a terrible way to, uh, you know, to, to look at art or you know, enjoy art. At all. But like, I just saw a bunch of Albert Owens, so I feel like I can mm-hmm. be like, oh, yeah. a contented man. Yeah. Um, 
And I still am always just like, I don't know what the hell, you know, so I don't, but I don't care what they're about. But they make me happy. They, they hit, it's like hearing a symphony or a punk band at the same time. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And that's liberating. And that's, you know, for me, you know, it sounds like you agree with that, though, that, that you know, not purposely trying to keep a viewer out. Who would do but, that? But that, have, that sounds crazy. I think there's art that's made that way. I mean, I really? sometimes wonder that about, um, I think he's an amazing writer, but like Infinite Jest. Oh, I didn't read that. That's all, I have not, that's one of those, like I will say I have not, someday in my life I hope I have enough time when I'm like remanded to some state institution somewhere. And, um, um, maybe they you're going to done. die reading Proust, right? Well, yeah. That's a callback, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. You're booked. Callback. In a stunning <laughs> tweet coat, though. Um, but uh, yeah, like some of that work seems kind of impenetrable to me. Like, why do I, you know, like the New York Times Sunday crossword? That's that's a workout. And but I'm sometimes nowadays, like I feel like I don't have enough bandwidth left. To, Stop saying bandwidth. That's to, my term. To come home, <laughs> oh, I'm hijacking. Uh, I'm hijacking that whole thing. Uh, you know, like why why does it have to again be this test or everything is like a, a really complex math problem? Like why? Yeah. I don't know what you're like. I. <laughs> You're not making any sense, Joe. Is that what you're saying? Um, uh, well, it, it's not that you're not making any sense, but I think it's sort of a straw man equivalency where, like, there's there's difficult art over here that causes a problem, but I, I don't think it's a problem. And, I, and as an art installer, I remember, and I am going to use an artist's actual name here, which I don't usually do, but I remember going to a collector's home who just bought... A big and I thought really like elaborate and important Joseph Kasuth piece. Mm -hmm. It was part of his uh, work where he's like quoting Freud and then interrupting the text with strips of neon or strips of uh, yeah, it was neon. And I remember, in, in other words, it's a type of work by one of the original practitioners of conceptual art, and it's like a later work. But I remember thinking. This is extraordinarily beautiful. It is not just routinely beautiful. This is extraordinarily beautiful. And me as someone who knew Kasuth's work very well, I, I did know the work. I knew this work. I knew this body of work. I knew his references. But all of that evaporated because the work was so beautiful. And I think that, I mean... That doesn't seem strange to me. You know, I think those uh, Jenny Holzer um, granite benches uh -huh. are amazing. And, you know, they're, they're almost tranquilized. It's like they're, they're Egyptian and tranquilized, and they're going to, like, wake up later and have important information. And I think they're extraordinary. I think the, uh, I didn't, uh, I have to say, I've seen the LED pieces by Holzer like in galleries and museums, but I didn't see any on the street because I was not in New York and I was too young and, and so on. But I, I just am kind of imagining walking down 42nd Street and like looking up and like at the signboard where you're used to seeing like New York Times Stock Exchange, like the Knicks are playing uh, the Cavaliers. Yes, that must have been amazing. And then suddenly seeing text that says, protect me from what I want without explanation or authorship. And that kind of like lightning strike of, oh, did I just see that? Is that real? 
Like that can't have been real. I, that, that has to be something that I dreamed. Like the importance of that, like I, I and it's not that it was explicable. It was meant to be inexplicable. I made a note that curiosity always supersedes the academic side. What is this academic side though? I don't think that's real. Like I'm, I'm not being, no, but I'm if, not if, pushing if, back. Like I really don't <clears throat> think it's real. Um, if, well, Picabia, your average Joe coming in off the street, this is not an average Joe by, by any means. Oh, but, but, if, if, but I'm an, if, if ever there was like a regular person, like I won't say average Joe, but a regular person mm -hmm. who came in off the street, it's mm -hmm. me. I mean, if ever there was one who came in, like I did not have any preparation. I've came in like, you know. But from, I mean, I would say the same thing, but like at some point though, you're a very well-read, informed person. Well, because I went, I mean, I, everyone has access to the things I had access to, which was like free libraries. Oh. Yeah. Television. One channel. We had like one real channel and one fuzzy channel when I was growing up. But you had the curiosity and the yes. follow through. Yes, yes. But, and, and that's, I mean, that's the key. But I, I don't think, I mean, what's, what's great about Picabia, and I, I will say, to tell an anecdote, I was, I was on a, a school trip to Paris. So my, my job, speaking of mentoring, was to mentor these students in Paris. I had one afternoon where I didn't have to, like, I didn't have to be with them. I had, like, a free afternoon. Oh, awesome. So I'm just wandering around, and I walk across the river, and I'm on Rue de New York, and I remember thinking, that's funny, New York Street, that's hilarious. So I'll walk on that. So I'm walking on Rue de New York, and I didn't know where I was. I'm just sort of freely walking. And suddenly, I see a sign, a banner hanging, not a sign, a banner that says Picabia. I'm like, what the deuce? As it turns out, I'm right in front of the uh, one of their the Museum of Contemporary Art, and where they had a Picabia retrospective. So, in a, it's beautiful to me because in a free wandering moment through the streets of Paris, I accidentally found the greatest free wandering artist in the in the form of Picabia. So I walk in. My French is not great, but I fumbled through and the front desk and so forth, and I had a whole afternoon of the entire life's work of Picabia. And it was one of the best art viewing experiences of my entire life. Maybe the best. I can't think of one that was superior to that. And it was all there. It opened up in front of me. I hear people talking a language that I barely understand, looking at work that I intuitively understood. And then the curators for that show, like moving through his career, getting through the diff you know, the early Dada works that everybody knows, going through the difficult sort of pornographic works that now everybody likes, and then getting to the end, which was an awkward ending, the really super abstract dot pieces that were curated so expertly that by the time you got to the end, it, it is as if you lived a life along with the yeah. artist. And so when the end, when things start to shut down, and it just becomes about this moment, like on the surface, it's not about any of the cultural references, it's not about I mean, whatever, it's not about the war, it's not about, you know, making love to uh, 
a German woman making love to a Jewish woman? Like, how are those two experiences different, et cetera, whatever is in Picabia's brain? I'm not trying to sort of say that Picabia is, is a, you know, an ideal model of a person, but as sort of a wandering intellect, he was a, a really fascinating person to me. And so the piece, Handsome Pork Butcher, it, I looked at it and it kind of knocked me flat. By the way, Moma's Picabia retrospective did not handle the final years very well, I didn't think, and it did not include Handsome Pork Butcher. Two strikes in my book. But anyway, this, this show in Paris, I saw Handsome Pork Butcher, and it has the plastic combs in it, and I hadn't seen another piece of art with plastic as a collage element that early. Because in the 20s, they're still, I mean, yes, they have a collage, but it's rope, it's stone, it's paper. It's things within sort of a, a palette of organic tones. Then you get to Picabia, who sort of says, you know what, plastic's in the world now. You know, this is 26. And he, he puts the comb in the, where the hair would be, so you're combing the hair. It's like the simplest, most like kind of dumb idea. <laughs> but it was... I just was flabbergasted. And the more I looked at the face, I was like, is there, a, is there a second face inside? It's like, oh yeah, because Picabia also was looking at film and montage and like overlaying negatives. It's like, oh, okay, there's two faces. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, there's a third person. And then I swear I found five different people inside Handsome Pork Butcher. It seems so simple. It seems like a one-off, like a gesture. But that piece has haunted me. It really has. Oh, wow. And when I, when I was working on the Bandit pieces for the Mocha GA show, I was saying, okay, it's gonna, I'm going to use like Santa as the Bandit because the point between giving and taking is like paper thin in some ways. And then I was talking to some artists, and they're like, again, people who know me pretty well, who sort of said, okay, Craig, like you work really hard. You're working all the time what gift would you give yourself? And without even thinking, not being strategic, without even thinking, I said, the gift I would give myself if I had access to anything in the world is Picabia's handsome pork butcher that's at the Tate. If I could have it and look at it every day, I would be gloriously happy. And then I thought, you know what? That is my present. And I'll put it wherever I feel like because it makes me happy. And whenever I need like a little, like a decal, like a pin, a button of happiness, I can put Handsome Pork Butcher there. I can't have access to the originals, but I can copy things pretty well. And so that's what I did, and that's why it recurs so often. That's a long answer to a very clear question, which is the only time that's happened this interview. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks for pulling out of the curb. <laughs> gotta, gotta. Follow us on Instagram at BrainFuzzPodcast. Get show notes at BrainFuzzPodcast.com. On social media, use hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. Delayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let the Eastern Europeans handle that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, Colin.